0: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to IFTF's Future Now, a podcast where we spotlight the researchers, scientists, and innovative thinkers who are influencing and shaping the new pathways for a better future. I'm Jean Hagen, IFTF's executive producer, and in today's episode, IFTF's ED, Marina Gorbis, talks with Art Taylor, president and CEO of BBB Wise Giving Alliance. Art has decades of experience in nonprofit development and philanthropic sectors, As a respected expert on trust, accountability, transparency, and good governance practices, Art shares how to instill confidence and trust in charitable giving. As an IFTF Foresight Essentials alum, Art is a champion of the importance of future readiness for the civic sector, and his work has led him to join IFTF's board of directors. In this conversation, Art and Marina explore how nonprofits can move from a mindset of scarcity to one of resilience, inspiration, and purpose by integrating strategic foresight. Marina and Art offer an inspiring vision for how the social sector can harness futures thinking and tools to create the change that they want to see. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Hello, Art.
2: Hello, Marina. How are you? I am just fine. I'm having a good summer here in the D.C. area. The yes. weather's been pretty warm, but it's been a great time for me as you know I've been on a sabbatical from work.
1: How long have you been on sabbatical now?
2: It's been three months so this is the last month here and by the end of this month I will have had four months away from work. Well as best as I could do it.
1: (laughs) I don't know if you were completely away from work because in the meantime you visited IFTF, you got on our board, you joined our board which is really exciting. So welcome to this podcast, the Future Now podcast, and also welcome to the IFTF Board of Directors, Board of Trustees.
2: Well, thank you. It's it's a real pleasure and honor to be affiliated with IFTF in this way. And I'm so looking forward to the work we can do together.
1: Me too. Same here. So maybe let's start with introducing you to IFTF community and to the world, you're CEO, president and CEO of Wise Giving Alliance, give.org. So maybe let's start with that. Talk a little bit about your organization, what you do, the mission.
0: Sure.
2: Well, the Wise Giving Alliance was established in 2001, but it is the successor of several other organizations that existed going back into the early 1900s. When people were asking about charities and causes that were soliciting them, and uh, part of the Better Business Bureau system was to try to re- resolve those questions, but they had no way to do it. So they created a program to essentially evaluate and look at charities to help people get information, some basic information on those organizations. And Back then, it wasn't much in the way of evaluation. Mm -hmm. But years later, Marina, into the 1980s and later, this organization really got into setting standards for how charities should behave. And those programs now have evolved to what we currently have in the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, which is an organization that evaluates charities in relation to a set of accountability standards. And what we try to do with these evaluations is help people appreciate whether they can trust them, trust them with their donations. And as you know, trust is the number one currency in the nonprofit sector, because if people don't trust the organizations, then they probably won't give to them. So we think we play a pivotal role in helping organizations demonstrate trust and helping people understand if those organizations are indeed trustworthy.
1: How do you evaluate whether somebody is trustworthy, whether this particular charity is worth giving money to?
2: Well, we have, as I mentioned, this set of standards that we use. And the standards were created through a broad process that involved multiple stakeholders. We're talking about lawyers, accountants nonprofit executives, foundation leaders, former state charity regulators, even surveys of the donating public to understand what they needed to feel trust in the organizations that they were supporting. And we established a, a committee of sorts to help us develop a draft of what these standards would be and then we put it out for a public comment and we revised the, the draft based on those comments. And finally, we released way back in 2003, what we currently use as the standards for charity accountability.
0: Mm-hmm. We're currently,
2: interestingly, in the midst of a revision of those standards. And it will be fascinating to see what the new newly revised standards look like when we're done that process. But it's sure. a very deliberative process. Because we want to make sure that all of the stakeholders who care about charities and supporting them, and actually doing the work, are somehow involved in a meaningful way.
1: So you have a panel of people who are bringing different perspectives to the sector, kind of offering their views of what what is a worthwhile, what's a trustworthy charity is, right?
2: Yes. And as it turns out, there are a few broad areas that the standards cover. Mm -hmm. Things like how well is the board managed and established? Because the board is key to what happens in an organization. Everything from setting its plan to providing the right kind of oversight to even meeting and having the requisite number of members on the board are all key to how well a board functions and it should be independent, free of conflicts of interest and so forth. So we look at those things. Also, most people are interested in how well an organization's managing its finances and reporting its finances and making sure that they're using the funds for the purposes for which they were intended. We also look at fundraising practices to make sure organizations are fairly soliciting people and giving out accurate and truthful information to go along with those appeals. And then we want to make sure organizations are assessing their performance to to make sure that they are moving in the direction of their mission. So these are some of the broad areas that the standards cover. I must say that organizations tell us it's a pretty rigorous process that they have to go through, but it's also one that they appreciate having gone through because it generally helps them improve their operations in some way.
1: So once you Done kind of the audit or you look to evaluate at the organization, you give them a seal from give.org.
2: Well, they can get a seal, but what they first get is an accreditation. It become an accredited charity with us. And if they want the seal, and, and some do and some don't, they can apply to us to license our logo
0: uh-huh. and
2: they can use that in their appeals on their website and other places to let people know that they are accredited by us. And that process just involves an application and proof of, well, we know that they met the standards and evidence that they do meet our standards, and then they can use the SEAL.
1: And you've been with the organizations since 2001. And a lot of these changes, is that something you've implemented?
2: Right. The charity SEAL, the expansion of the number of organizations we evaluate, We also launched several other programs, some that work really well and some that are still on the emerging list of things to to grow into, but we're pretty experimental. We like to try different things that help charities move their causes forward and also give donors what they need in order to do Great due diligence when it comes to supporting a charity.
1: One question I have is difference between a charitable organization and a nonprofit organization, because sometimes people use these terms interchangeably, but there is a difference, yeah. right?
2: Yes, there is. So there there are what are known as tax exempt organizations and also public charities and private charities. So in the case of a private foundation, for instance, this would be an organization that doesn't pay taxes, but doesn't get public support. It gets support from one general source and mostly makes grants to other organizations. So we know these as some of the major foundations in the country, Ford, Mott, Cerdna, Carnegie. You have the Rockefeller Foundation. Out West, in your way, you have the Hewlett Foundation and many others. And then there are just public charities. These are organizations that are generally soliciting the public, and they get a broad base of support from the donating public to support the work that they're doing. Both of them are nonprofits. Now, there are other types of nonprofits as well, but when people give them money, they are not entitled to any type of tax deduction. These are other types of associations and organizations that are what we call C4 organizations. They are advocacy organizations. And the people who give to them don't get a tax deduction, although the organizations themselves do not have to pay taxes. So you can be a nonprofit, but not be an organization that can offer donors a charitable deduction. And that's all laid out in our Internal Revenue Code for anyone who wants to take time to, <laughs> to <begin laughs> well, and see it.
1: No, we'll outsource it to people like you <laughs> organizations like yours. Right. Right. That's great. I have a lot more questions about that, but let's kind of connect this conversation to also the futures and the Institute for the Future. And I know you've become a big fan of futures work and foresight, and that's partially why we brought you on board, because you've been such an enthusiastic supporter and user of some of the IFTF processes and techniques. So give us a little bit of background. Like, how did you come to the Institute? How did you get to know? How did you get into futures and foresight work?
2: Well, it's a pretty funny story, I would say, and Mm -hmm. it's also one of those things that you just feel the love of serendipity. (laughs) I love serendipity. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, serendipity is just wonderful. So, boy, it it must have been about 10 years ago, Marina, and I'm not quite sure the year, but um, it's somewhere around a decade ago, that I was thinking about our organization and feeling that While we were doing well, the world was changing really fast around us, faster than it had been my previous 10 years with the organization. Many more players in the space, a lot of things going on in the environment that made no sense to me at the time. And there was a lot of discomfort I had about that. And I did not really know how to address that discomfort. I kind of felt that if we just keep doing what we are, we could be, and they were using this term at the time, which I don't think we use a whole lot anymore, disrupted. <laughs> right.
1: and Favorite so, Silicon Valley word. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Right. So yes. I, I, I didn't know what to do. And at the time, Marina, I was, as I do, volunteer with a lot of different things, but I was the senior warden at our small Episcopal church in Clinton, Maryland, where I live. And every year, the Episcopal Diocese of Washington has its annual convention at the Washington Cathedral. And so I have to go to represent our church to the convention. And I'm sitting there, and one of the presentations is by this guy named Bob Johansson,
1: Oh, I think I know him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think you do. And he's from this place called the Institute for the Future. And so I'm sitting there thinking, this ought to be interesting. Let me just hear what Bob has to say. So he gives this presentation about a map that he and some of you all at the Institute created. Map of the Episcopalian Church, a 10-year map.
1: Futures so map, yeah. A
2: futures map is to give us some idea of where things might lead over the next 10 years. And I was just fascinated by this, this talk that ah. he gave us. And at the end of it, he said, so let me just sum this up. The good news is that the Episcopalian Church has a tradition of giving. And all of the signals we're seeing tell us that those who give without thinking about what they get in return will indeed get a lot in return. because That's the nature of the world right now. But he also said, here's your challenge. And he put this picture of a girl on a screen who had just achieved the next level of her video game. And if you could ever see a young person's face, she, she was euphoric almost having achieved this next level. And Bob looks soberly out into this audience and he says, this is your problem. You have to compete with that on Sunday. Right. And the bells just went off in my <laughs> head because many of us in our congregations are seeing A dramatic decline in Sunday attendance and it's really hard to get younger people to attend and they are indeed looking to be entertained and so we recognize that we do have this major challenge and I can tell you it's how it's played out even now the 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 bishop who runs the entire Episcopalian Church across the United States has said that during his tenure, he wanted to cover two things, Bishop Curry. One, he wanted to have us reconcile our history with racism. And two, he wanted us to be more evangelical because Mm -hmm. our church had a tradition of just expecting that people would just come to us. The bottom line is they aren't coming to us anymore. And so he was really adamant that we would find a way to be more evangelical that aligned with our traditions and our culture. So, just to give you some idea, that did come out to be one of the tenets of our work together. So, after this presentation, I'm like, I got to get to know this guy, Bob Johansson. So, I, I stormed the stage after he's done and I introduced myself. And I'm, you know, sort of harried. I'm so excited that I finally met someone who's a real futurist who really thinks about these things. And I said to him, Is there any way that I could learn more about how you do your work? Is there anything out there that we could take advantage of? And he said, Unfortunately, no. He was very kind, as Bob always is. He says, But, you know, let's just stay in touch. And, uh, You know, we mostly work with large corporations and, you know, larger organizations to do these projects that help them see what their future possibilities might be. So, you know, I was a little sad about that, but Mm -hmm. I did kind of keep in touch. And some years later, about three or four years later, I can't remember. I'm so bad with time. I reached out to the Institute And spoke to one of the staff there, and I said, you know, I met this guy, and I'm just curious if there are any programs that you guys have at this point. And they said, actually, (laughs) last year we started this program called Foresight Intensive, I think you called it,
0: Mm -hmm. where
2: we sort of teach people the rudimentary skills of forecasting. And some tools, we give you some tools you can use. And so I immediately signed up and joined this Foresight Intensive, became a member, part of this Foresight Intensive, came out to the offices there in Palo Alto. And it was three days that changed my life. I mean, I, I know I sound like some type of weird person.
1: But, you know, it's funny you say that because that's the thing that we hear more, most often. Like people who go through the training, they they somehow been transformed. So although I know it sounds weird, but I've heard this before. (laughs) And by the way, for people who don't know who Bob Johansson is, (laughs) Bob is somebody who hired me at the Institute. I think it was 1998, which tells you how old I am. And Bob, we're actually celebrating his 50 years at the Institute for the Future He came to the Institute in 1973. The Institute was founded in 68. So he's really the longest serving futurist at the Institute and has done amazing work. Sociologist by training, also went to divinity school and did really foundational early work on how people were using ARPANET, which is a predecessor of the internet and if you read that writing along with Jacques Vallée and our colleague Cassie Vian, it's really worth reading what they were seeing and kind of social uses of these very early technologies that's now become embedded into every aspect of our lives.
2: Quite amazing gentleman and has been a friend of mine since we've met. But yep. just to get back to how it's changed my life. So I, I leave the Institute and... You know, one of the things you all say during the training is that insights are things that you cannot unsee. You know, once you get an insight, you can't unsee it. Mm
1: -hmm. And so it
2: does change you, you know. It's
1: like the light bulb goes off, right? Like when you said that, as you were listening to Bob, the light bulb went off.
2: It just goes off. And so... You're now in a situation where every time you look at the world or you look at a problem, you're thinking about that problem differently. You're thinking about how you apply a lens that connects it somehow to the future. When I came back from foresight training, the first thing I did was start a social media group on Facebook called Signals.
1: I know, I love that group.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The first thing I did, because one of the things I learned from you all is that the basic building blocks of a forecast are just collecting weird things that are going on in the environment. Things that maybe they might become something, maybe they might not, but If you see something weird, write it down or take note of it. And what you may find is that others are seeing these things, too, in different contexts. And if you see lots of them, maybe it's more than just a signal of something. It could actually be the beginning of a shift of some kind. And a shift is something that we really have to pay attention to, because that is something that could really be changing how we live, work, or play. And so I was so fascinated with this concept of signals gathering, because I felt this is how you stay ahead, or as you would say, how you get to the future early. And I was adamant about that. And from that point, Marina, every speech I gave, it had something to do with some of these weird signals I was seeing. I was trying right. to relate them back to what I saw in the environment and what was going on in the world today. And we did That's our right. strategic plan at work. We, we gathered some of the major shifts that we were seeing at the time to help us think differently about collaboration at the Wise Giving Alliance. And
0: mm-hmm.
2: well, We've been doing numerous collaborative projects since that time. Even right. I took it to my college where I'm on the board of trustees, Franklin and Marshall College, I attended one of the major events you have, our 10-year forecast retreats. Mm-hmm. And one of the 10-year forecast retreats left us with, I think it was 11 or so shifts that you identified. Right. And I took those to our board and said, we need to pay attention to these. And we actually built a retreat for the board of trustees around some of those shifts. And believe me, they thought I was a genius because I knew all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I was basically plagiarizing everything That's I That's one way
1: to, <laughs> to <laughs> right. enjoy the future's work is you're the smartest person in the room, I've, right?
2: I'll, I'll never forget this presentation I gave at a law firm that was doing legal work for many in the nonprofit sector. One of the major law firms had this event, and they invited me to give a talk about what I was seeing in the environment. And you should have saw the eyes (laughs)
1: of people. And lawyers are a tough audience.
2: Oh, my goodness. And, well, there were some people from the nonprofit sector there, too, and they came up to me afterward, where are you getting all this? This is so amazing. We've been thinking. But, you know, people see these things, on their own, but they don't quite know what to do with them.
1: And they never stop and think about what does it all mean, right? they are just bombarded. And especially now, we're in the world where every day you wake up and there is some unbelievable thing that unthinkable just becomes the new normal, right? And so we're bombarded with this right now. Mm -hmm. And it's important to stop and think, is this a signal or is this noise? And what is the larger pattern here? What is it telling us? And how, once you get that, what it means and make sense of it is to ask yourself, what does it mean to us? What does it mean to my organization, my community, to my family, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: From there. I mean, once you're in the future's world or you've been doing this work, it almost seems unthinkable that people can do any kind of strategy work without first understanding that landscape. What are we seeing on the horizon? You know, what are the signals of that?
2: So true, because, you know, in our sector, strategic planning is quite common. we Right. I wanted to
1: ask you about that. And let's go there. And you said something interesting, which is that, you know, for a long time and since 1968, obviously, 55 years, lots of things have changed in terms of some of the methodologies, some of the tools, but also... You know, who's using this work? Their early work and the origin of the Institute is really the US government. And a mm-hmm. lot of that work was done, it was classified, it was by the Department of Defense, kind of fear of nuclear war and new social upheavals and things like that. So there was government work. And then it moved into corporate world. You know, when I came to the Institute, we had corporate membership programs, we still do. It's not just corporate, but most of the organizations that are members were corporate. And so they very much adopted this practice, whether it's scenario planning or trend analysis, but it became part of just normal processes within the corporate world. But it's new to the civic sector. It's it's really not as much known or used in nonprofit sectors, in the philanthropy sector. What are you seeing there and why that is?
2: Well, I can tell you why I think it is. It's primarily because organizations are always operating out of scarcity. You know, they're Mm -hmm. they're feeling like we don't have enough money to even get through the year no matter how large the organization is, even large organizations generally have to raise their budgets every single year from scratch, you know? And so they're very careful about making sure that what needs to get done this year gets done. And their strategic planning focuses on what's going on today. Right. And so, but we're in an environment now where, that doesn't really help because, again, you could probably tell us whether things are actually moving more rapidly today than, than they have been ever before. It kind of feels like it. Uh, the digital age has certainly given us the ability to gather more information and maybe uh, attempt more things as a result. Yeah. And so there's a lot more, a lot more opportunity that we want to take advantage of, some of which we really ought to try to take advantage of. But where are the resources to do it and how do we make decisions about which opportunities we take and which ones we don't? These organizations are so careful about how they spend their money, that they want to get it right. And if there is a thing that seems to be valuable, not today, but maybe some years down the road, they have to learn about what that thing is and then figure out where are the resources going to come from in order to do it. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think futures Building futures into into strategic planning is so critical. We don't have the money to do the thing that's coming 10 years from now if we don't begin to plan for it today. So we have to begin thinking future out. If there's something that is going to likely happen or could potentially happen, we have to begin putting resources toward that now so that we'll be ready when this change actually occurs, I always believe, Marina, that change is a crisis only if you're not prepared for it. If you're prepared for it, it's not a crisis. It's a good thing. You can take advantage of more opportunities, but the only way we can be prepared for change is if we're lucky and it just happens upon us and we, we seem to be prepared or if we have kind of looked out and envisioned what that future world might look like, and began to prepare for it. Let's face it, we could also, we could also find that by looking out into the future, we create the future <laughs> rather than letting it affect us, right? We could have some agency in the building of that future, which I think nonprofits have largely been left out of. And I, I would love to see that begin to change, but the only way it's gonna change is if we can begin spending more time maybe living with at least a foot in the future and you know, maybe we could have the rest of our body in the present, but we need to have at least a foot in the future as we go about our work.
1: And I think that's really important. It's It gives you a sense of agency. It gives you a sense that the future is not a given. You know, we always say that nobody can predict the future and that's probably one of the first learnings at the Institute over, you know, the first five years of the Institute's existence is that mostly you can't predict the future. And that's not a bug, it's a feature because it means that you have some power, some agency in shaping a more desirable future. So it's partially about being prepared. You've thought through various possibilities so they're not a strange or alien to you, you've thought through it, so you kind of mentally feel prepared. And the other thing is that you've thought about what do we need to do to shape it in a more desirable direction? So it serves all all of these different functions. Do you see kind of a shift now? Do you see more interest? Do you see organizations that you work with feeling that they are more open to integrating foresight into their strategy, into their vision, into their actions? Are we at that moment?
2: I think there's a combination of things going on. One might be that there are organizations that understand the need for this and they get it and they want to build this into how they operate. There are other organizations that are stressed about the future and are looking for ways to (laughs) de-stress. They're looking for answers. You know, what's going on? Why am I feeling that way? Sort of like I did when I met Bob. And it's great that the Institute is around to help them. And I can't wait for us to find ways to make this work more broad-based, make people more aware of it so that they don't have to feel that stress. You can feel stress about other things if you want to. You shouldn't have to feel stress about whether you have tools to understand what may be happening in the future based on what you're seeing today. That we can—that's a problem we can solve.
1: So, de-stressing is one of the positive outcomes of futures work, right?
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, for some, for some it might, for some it might gather more stress. So, if you're if you're just a person who lives your life oblivious to everything going on around you and suddenly you start looking out and you're seeing wow there's a lot of change coming and and I don't really want to change then yes I guess you're going to be stressed out. But I do think that yeah, most leaders that I know are wanting their organizations to succeed and they want to be leaders who help those organizations do that and they want to understand what's going on. They want to be the, they want to provide answers to their people. They want to co-create with their teams and volunteers so that the organization can do what it was set up to do. I even tell people Marina, if you're if you're looking to support an organization, it seems to me the question that you should be asking isn't necessarily what has the organization done over the last 10 years, although that is somewhat important. But more important is, what's your vision for what you're going to be doing over the next 10 years? And how can we help with that? Because we all sense that there are interesting and somewhat scary challenges on the horizon And organizations that are operating today are going to have to change in ways that prepare them to address those challenges, no matter what field you're in, in the nonprofit sector. So what you're doing today is not likely to be enough 10 years from now. What are you going to do about it? That's the question. What are you going to do about it? And you learn, I think, together what you're going to do by building in foresight, into the conversations that you're having around your organization as it goes forward.
1: You're in a lot of different boards and you teach in several places. So talk about those, like what boards you're on, where are you teaching? I know you're starting at Lilly School and you've been teaching at Columbia and I think other places So first of all, just talk about your other boards and what boards you are on, which are many. Well, you
2: know, it's 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 kind of striking to me that I'm actually teaching at these two really prestigious institutions. Really bright people come to my lectures and are part of the classes that I teach. I've taught ethics in the nonprofit sector. I've taught board governance. I'm teaching a class starting. This semester in leading and managing nonprofit organizations at Lilly School, I'm going to be teaching a class on leadership profiles. So what's what's striking to me and maybe not to all of you because you don't know me so well, is that I was always just an average student. If you were to see my transcripts over the years, you'd say, he's pretty average. (laughs) But I guess I've learned I think I'm a pretty good teacher, even though I was only an average student. And I think the reason for that is that I've learned what it takes to help people understand what they need to know. know, and, And what one of the things they need to know is what we're talking about. No matter what you're doing as a manager, you have to build foresight into it. If You're a leader. You have to build foresight into it. As a board member, you have to know something about foresight. You have to be asking questions about the future. And so now to go to some of the boards, I'll just say that there's been a lot of flux going on in a number of the organizations whose boards I serve on. They have a great year fundraising, and then next year the funds aren't there. They have great talent, and then the talent isn't so great. They're doing great work, and then maybe the work slides off a little bit. They get a lot of members, and then the members are not as as sticky as they thought they were going to be. There's a lot of ups and downs that these organizations are going through, almost throughout. There's probably one that's had a really great year this year and I'm, I'm on about nine boards right now, every organization is rethinking whether the work they're doing is resonating with funders and with their markets, with the people they're trying to serve. And every organization, by the way, is also looking at their work through lenses of race, lenses of equity, both financial equity and and racial equity and gender equity and all of the equities that we need and it's hard the work is not easy right now you know serving on a board used to be far more symbolic or honorary <laughs> it's not honorary anymore it's real hard work and it's not easy to find good board members anymore and so Yeah, you know, it's not easy to find good board members, but I think that what we have to do is work with these organizations, help them see that what they're going through is normal, and help them build a certain degree of resilience in their operations and their administration so that. They're not freaked out, if I could use that colloquial phrase, about what's going on around them. Things are messy right now. You know, in a two year, three year stretch, you can't make sense of anything. And it's actually freeing when you can look further down the road as a board and focus on those opportunities while you manage some of the challenges that you're facing today. I mean, you could very easily look at the challenge you're facing right now and say, I'm out. I don't have this. I don't have the stomach for this. This is harder than I thought. But if you look out at the possibilities, if you imagine that one day you're going to come out of this and you're going to come out of it stronger because you re-envisioned what the work is that the organization does and how it can do it how it can be funded, then the work gets to be exciting and you start to feel like you have the ability to create change in the world or in your community or at whatever level you're working on. So that gives, for those of us who are going through those difficult times as board members or as staff, even in some organizations. You have to give yourself room to lift your head above the trees and look farther out. And believe me, what you're looking down at is is not as scary as you think it is. You're just buried in the trees right now. You got to get out of the trees. But believe me, once you do, there's opportunity and you can find it by paying attention to what's coming. That's my message.
1: There's been so much criticism of this, that the board and how executives are evaluated is basically their stock price and return on investments, right? And the primary role of the corporate board is to maintain the profitability and return to investors, right? Which is not something that's applicable to the nonprofit sector. Like Obviously, they have to be resilient and profitable just to survive. But there is not that kind of pressure, right? So it would seem to me that the role of nonprofit boards is specifically that, to look longer term, to understand the landscape and to focus on the long term rather than immediate sort of crisis and solving crisis. And I understand that you have to solve immediate crisis. You have have to sort of operate at two levels right? You can't survive if you don't deal with a crisis. But at the same time, if you don't think longer term, and if you don't pay attention, you're going to be in the crisis forever. Every day, you're going to be in a crisis mode.
2: Yes. And you can never break out of a crisis just battling the crisis alone. You have to have a vision for what you want to do as you come out of the crisis, because that's inspiring to people. And if you don't inspire people, about the future, then I think you're missing out on opportunities to get others to join you. Because in the end, Marina, you know, if you you can take any nonprofit and if they're honest, they'll all say, we could have done more. We didn't quite do everything we wanted to do. Our mission still isn't resolved. All of them can say that. Well, what people want to hear and what's inspiring to them is your mission, is your vision, is the ideas that you have for going after it and achieving it. You know, people will listen to you talk about the struggles that you're going through. What they want to hear about is how are you going to get past it? So many organizations have been around hundreds of years. Think of all of the health charities. They've been around hundreds of years and we still have those diseases and people still support them because they give us hope that one day we're going to solve those problems. Well, the hope doesn't come from what you did 50 years ago. The hope comes from what you're proposing and how you're connecting with the opportunities that lay ahead in the future.
1: Yeah, you probably know that we use this term, urgent optimism, Mm -hmm. our colleague Jane McGonigal introduced. And it's really about when a lot of people think about the future, and particularly now with AI and chat, you can see there are all these really scary visions of the future. You know, everybody's job will disappear. We're all going to be replaced. There's going to be tons of misinformation, disinformation, and all of that. So you see all these very dire visions of the future, you don't see a lot of positive visions of the future. And one thing that you're saying, and we believe in, is this idea that actually the process of thinking about the future and the process of foresight should give you a sense of this urgent optimist. Yes, there are all these potential things, and that's the urgency, but you could create something a lot better. You can move it in some direction, but there is urgency in that. If you don't act, it's not going to happen.
2: That's right. And I frankly would say, if we're not going to fight for a better future, why are we here? I think our job as human beings is to spend some of our life positioning the world and our societies so that future generations are better off than we currently are. That's our work. That gives us purpose. And I think that humans function better when we have purpose. When we don't have purpose, I think we kind of languish. I know I do. I need purpose in my life. Maybe one of the reasons I'm on so many boards is they all give me some purpose for existing. You know, it's not just to accumulate money, although don't don't get me wrong, I love money, Marina. But (laughs) the purpose is what you get up in the morning for, right? I mean, it's, it's the thing that drives you to, to what you want to do with your life. And I just think that's what we have to keep people mindful of. You could probably tell us more about this. I don't know. It almost feels like a, a pandemic when it comes to the mental health issues, emotional health that people are experiencing now. And I wonder how much of that is a function of people not having or feeling purpose in their life.
1: And and a sense of connection, a sense of community, communal purpose, not just individual, but communal, the breakdowns of kind of social ties and other things. But let me ask you this. What do you hope to do as a board member at IFTF? What, what do you see? What's your vision for the Institute? Or are you more mostly just in that learning period? You're just finding out. You're like, what, what's your hope?
2: Well, of course I'm going to learn. But my hope really is that every nonprofit organization has that moment of euphoria that I had. When I discovered that I don't have to be a victim of the future, I can be a part of it, that I can help shape it. And it's, it's not impossible to get people there. It's, it's just giving them an orientation to the tools and the skill sets that are available through an organization like the Institute. And I want the Institute to be positioned to offer that. That's what I really want. I want to see the Institute thrive in a way that every organization has the tools and is able to use those tools to feel better about their possibilities of operating and helping their cause grow and thrive in the future. That's what I want.
1: And that's exactly why we brought you on board. (laughs) We are, you know, our mission is to make futures, tools, and methodologies massively public. Literally infect organizations, communities, people with that notion of systematically and hopefully thinking about the future and creating actions to to build that better world that you talk about.
2: Absolutely. And I, I just think that no nonprofit should operate without that. You're, you're at a huge disadvantage if you haven't begun to take advantage of these tools, you really need to learn more about. Every time I talk to somebody about the foresight intensive, they're like, "Oh, where do I sign up for that?" And <laughs> how do I get involved in it? So we just got to get the word out. We just got to get the word out. And you know, when I left the first foresight intensive, I had a bunch of my uh, nieces and nephews and my my own kids over, and I I, I told them. I got to take you all through this. You all have to become futurists. And so I sat them down and I started taking them through these tools. And so now they all have, you know, the rudiments of it, at least. And they're like, Dad, did you see this happening? Oh, no. <laughs> and so they're, now, they're all now there, too. It's not impossible to do. And it's fun. I'll say the other thing it's fun.
1: I totally agree with you. And what you said, actually, the sense of euphoria I felt when I went through that training is exactly how I feel when we have our conversations, when I participate in our trainings and I see people. And this is the most frequent thing that people report as a result of it is I totally, totally transformed how I think. You know, I I can't unthink it. I can't think in the same way. And it's incredibly gratifying. And it is fun. It's absolutely is fun. Thank you so much. You made it so clear why you're such a perfect board member. And I can't wait to work with you more. And thank you for joining the board. So appreciate having you.
2: Well, thank you, Marina. And for all you and the team at the Institute do, I can't wait to just embed myself in everything you're doing.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting iftf.org. Until next time.